Hello, I'm John Pollitt, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Today, we are listening to General Larry Spencer's Saluki Story. A retired Air Force General, Spencer is a 1979 graduate of SIUC with a major in Industrial Engineering Technology. He took his classes weekends while on active duty. General Spencer's autobiography, titled Dark Horse, General Larry O. Spencer and His Journey from the Horseshoe to the Pentagon, will be available for purchase November 15 at your favorite bookstore. Let's hear more from General Spencer and dive right in. When you were taking classes on base, how did that, I guess, let me start. How did it work? Yeah, it was a, it was a great uh, program. Um, and keep in mind, this was before uh, all of the Zoom calls and online, uh, you know, instructions or instruction or online classes. Um, everything was pretty much brick and mortar at that time. Uh, and I happened to be stationed at uh, Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, and I was enlisted uh, in the Air Force. And I wanted to get my degree. And I wanted to get my degree uh, in either industrial engineering or industrial engineering technology. And coincidentally, uh, Southern Illinois at Carbondale offered the, those both degrees, in particular the industrial technology degree. Uh, and fortunately for me, our base was one of the bases that they, uh, that they provided instruction to. So if you can picture this, a, a professor, and, and it was more than one, but one in particular, would fly from Carbondale down to Fayetteville, North Carolina every weekend. And we would go to class from eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday uh, and, until about six and then eight o'clock on Sunday until about six. Uh, and then and, and we would go through. So what he taught was the core courses for the degree. The electives, I actually had to go downtown to a, a local college in Fayetteville, North Carolina to take those. But the core courses uh, were taught by a professor from the campus. Uh, and if you can think about this for a second, three weekends was a course. So we would cover a third of the book every weekend. It was unbelievable. Uh, it was it was difficult. And, 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 and I'm, look, I was in the Air Force. I was working full time. So um, so in terms of my family time, my entire weekend was taken up. And then I had homework, you know, during the week and tests, plus taking my elective courses. So it was very difficult. Uh, but I was really appreciative of Southern Illinois University uh, and of the professors who were very good. They were very patient. Uh, they were very sharp and they worked with us, uh, made sure that we uh, had everything we needed. But I, it was one of the I mean, you know, would have been would, uh, an experience as an 18, 19 year old attending school on campus. Uh, would I have enjoyed that more? Probably. Uh, but would I have been as focused? Right. Uh, and would I would I have gotten as much out of it? No way. No. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because I had to be focused and the professors were so good. Um, it, it I don't I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that 
that changed the trajectory of my life, which is, uh, we're going to get into the book later, which is yeah. part of what's in the book. But that degree from Southern Illinois, Illinois University literally uh, changed the trajectory of my life. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you're definitely a leader. Yeah. Leadership. I, I don't know why, but I, I have a passion for leadership. I, I enjoy it. Uh, and, and I've seen, I've seen it work. Um, you know, let, let me give you a quick example. When, uh, when I graduated, I, I was as a, I think I was a major and of all things, I attended the Marine Corps command staff college. So even though I was in the Air Force, I got to go live with Marines for a year, uh, down at Quantico and, and attend their training. Uh, and, and following that year, was when Desert Storm was started, Desert, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And I happened to go be a commander uh, at the Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina, uh, who was very engaged in the war based on the weapon systems that we had. Um, and so, again, this is sort of interesting because I was a comptroller. I was the comptroller squadron commander. And, and people don't really understand how important money is to war, but, you know, I, I like to say you don't go to war without it. You, you really can't. Yeah. Uh, for example, when our, when our base deployed forward, uh, we couldn't do anything until we bought food, until we bought showers, till we bought, you know, equipment, till we bought tents. I mean, we had to buy everything. Uh, and so it was quite an experience. Uh, so, but what I remember most about that is, you know, keep in mind, we hadn't been to war as a country, a war, deployed for a war since Vietnam. Right. Yeah. And so none of us thought this was going to happen. We thought it'd be a lot of saber rattling and, you know, everybody talking back and forth and, 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 and we, you know, it'd be over. Um, so once it started, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in a staff meeting with my wing commander. Uh, he briefed us all on, you know, Kuwait. Uh, I'm sorry, the Iraqis had gone into Kuwait. Uh, he actually showed us maps and we saw we saw the whole thing. Uh, and, and he said, we're, we're going to war and we're going to be right in the middle of, it. uh, and so I remember leaving this, the meeting and I actually stopped by the base park on the way back only because I wanted to sit by myself for a minute and think about how am I going to communicate this to my squadron? Cause I had a lot of young, young airmen in my squadron. None of them had ever deployed, had no experience at all. Right. And so I got back to the office. Uh, I asked my first sergeant to call an emergency meeting. We met in this big room. And if you can picture this, you know, they're, they're in there. They've heard all the things on the news. They know something's going on. So the, the tension was, was thick. Uh, I walk into the room. They call the room to attention. I ask everybody to relax and sit down. And I start going over with them what the situation was in Kuwait and that we would be involved. And I remember telling them, I had told them all along that although we are financial managers, our job is to launch airplanes. And, and Seymour Johnson had F-15Es, uh, which is a really potent fighter jet. And I said, I, no, our job, yeah, we pay people, we take care of finances, we, we, we budget, we do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, our, our job is to launch airplanes and, and go to war when we need to. And I always told them that. And so... I started telling them that, you know, we explaining to them how crucial our role would be uh, in this in this uh, in this war effort. And and it, I wasn't sure what the reaction would be 
But when I got finished talking to them, they all jumped up and they were, I mean, they were not yelling because they wanted to go to a war, but yet they were fired up because this was their opportunity to show what they could do. And Excellent. they were part of the team and they were, and they were going to hold up their end no matter what. Uh, and now fast forward about another day, uh, just to show you how important financial managers were. If you can imagine going to uh, Desert Shield at the time, then Desert Storm, there were cargo airplanes landing at our base and taking off every minute or so. I mean, it was just an incredible operation. Oh, yeah. And, and so these airplane departures, they referred to in the Air Force as chalk. So you have chalk one's the first airplane, chalk two, the second airplane on, 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 on down. And it's, it's a pretty sophisticated operation. And you get uh, orders down from your headquarters and they, they almost by name and by number, you know, who's going to deploy where and who's going to do what. And on the second plane, Chalk 2, they had a bunch of finance folks on that airplane who were so. And, and, and back then, keep in mind, we didn't have a direct deposit. Uh, we, right. we were still dealing with checks back then. And so I had I had this. So the second airplane off the ground to deploy to this war, there were three finance guys and I had got them ready to go. They literally had a suitcase, not, not a, case, a briefcase full of cash money and checks. It, it, right now, that seems so ancient. We would never do that today. But he literally, we was holding that thing for dear life. Uh, and, and so uh, the three of them were on this airplane. I walked up on the airplane as their commander just to say, hey, goodbye. Uh, you know, I, I explained to them what they needed to do when they landed and what the procedures were, and they had a safe and all of that. Uh, and in fact, they ended up because uh, generally security forces or cops protect them because they needed cops to protect the base, they had to protect themselves and the money. So, uh, the, and, and, and a couple of the guys were pretty young. Uh, one was an E7, he was kind of senior, but the others were 19, 20 years old, the other two. And so I was standing there talking to them uh, and I happened to know the pilot, so we were kind of talking as well. And the youngest guy, he, was, he couldn't have been more than 19. I could tell he was really scared. And he, lo he looked at me, he said, sir, he says, I'm a little nervous. He said, are we going to be okay? And I said, of course, this is what we've trained for. This, this is, if you, you know, this is why we spent all that time training uh, on how to do our jobs. And he said, he says, sir, are you coming with us? And I said, I I've already volunteered. So I said, as soon as, as, soon as the, they, they need the first comptroller, I said, I'll be right behind you. And and, and as he said, he said, OK, great. And then as I was walking off, because the loadmaster, who's the person that loads the airplane, by the way, picture this. All the people are sitting around the, the fuselage at the edge of the airplane with no windows, by the way. And the center of the airplane is packed with equipment. Yeah. So yeah. they're sitting against the airplane with their feet up on the equipment. It was an unbelievable scene. Uh, and so as I leave to go down the steps of the airplane to come off the master sergeant who's a senior guy said sir i hope you can come soon because we feel a lot better if you were with us uh i wow. mean to me that's that's what i leadership you know that that they knew i wasn't i would never ask them to do anything i wouldn't do uh and that that i would always have their back if they were right and by the way, if they were wrong, I'd call them in the room and chew them out in private. But uh, but they knew it was like a family, and and they knew that uh, I had their best interests at heart. 
you know, a lot of people think leadership is, you know, telling people what to do and ordering people around. And yeah, in the military, you can do that. But that's not what leadership is. No. Um, leadership is following people because you believe in them, you trust them, you have confidence in them, not them because of you. Uh, and so th- that's, uh, to me, I-, I don't know where I got that from, but that to me is what, that does it for me. If, if I have an opportunity to lead, um, that's what I'm going to do because I-, I love people and I love, uh, I-, I love getting things done with people. Uh, and so I've got a thousand stories like that, but yeah, leadership to me, that's what, I, I-, I didn't realize I'd mentioned it that many times, but now that, now that you mentioned it, I-, I know I did because that's, uh, that's what I, that, that, that's what I feel like my calling is. Yeah. Well, I tell you, that was, if you could make being a comptroller exciting, <laughs> you did. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, my wing commander said the same thing. He said, uh, and by the way, um, when we got back from the war, uh, which was almost as hectic as going, oh, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, ironically, we got hit with a big base inspection. Nobody was happy about that because we'd just gone from the war. But several months after that, we had a big inspection. Uh, and our unit was rated the highest unit on the base. Again, a comptroller squad. Really? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. So right. Again, I, I'm not taking credit for that, but it, but we had that much pride in what we were doing. And, and, and it's really important to no matter where you were, people need to understand what's the mission of this place we, we are, what is, whether it's at IBM or, or Amazon or, 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 you know, I'm on the board of Whirlpool, whether it's an appliance, appliance company, yeah. you first need to understand what does this company do? What does this organization do? And how do I fit in? And how can I make it better? And they have to feel like, you know, the, the ore the, the that they are rowing means something. Uh, and, and that was my objective, to let them know that if they didn't pull on their oar, the, the boat wasn't going to sail as smooth as, smooth as it should. Yeah, terrific, terrific. So leadership is a theme in your book. What are any other themes? Sure. Um, a lot of the, again, a lot of it is about um, uh, situations I had where I um, – you know, I got knocked down. The, the book, without giving it away, the first chapter opens up when I was in middle school and I had my first fight uh, it, because that's 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 how rough, uh, you know, the neighborhood I, I grew up in was. Um, but uh, it talks a lot about uh, perseverance. Uh, I, I don't want to take too much time, but let, let me give you another example. So even though I grew even though I grew up in uh, D.C., um, in hindsight, I didn't feel like it at the time, but in hindsight, I was very fortunate because my grandfather lived in the Southern Virginia, uh, was close to Appomattox, so so, sort of Southern Western Virginia, and he had a tobacco farm. And so I would go down in the summers because I had a cousin that lived with my grandparents about my age. And so I would spend the summers with them. Uh, And, you know, we would, it wasn't any fun to me at the time because we were up at 5.30, you know, working in tobacco fields. No TV, no nothing. So, again, in hindsight, it was some of the best time of my life, but it didn't seem that way at the time at 14. Right. Um, so, um, one of the summers I got, I got down to his farm, and my cousin 
was with his mother in Philadelphia. So for whatever reason, we were off about two weeks. So he came down two weeks later. So it was just my grandfather and I, and, you know, he was sort of an introvert. I was too. So we didn't talk a whole lot, but he decided that I guess that, uh, you know, this summer he would mentor me and, you know, so he started talking more to me. And, and by the way, um, just to give you some of the tidbits of information he would give me that I thought was thought was useless then, and I think it's useless now. You know, he, he took an hour to explain to me the dif- difference between a donkey and a mule, uh, which, again, I, wh- why I needed to know that is beyond me. Um, I remember he said a blind, even a blind rooster finds a kernel every once in a while. I, I'm still scratching my head over that. But, but so, so our, our, our routine was to get up in the morning. My, you know, my grandmother, it was an old house, no electricity, uh, you know, no indoor plumbing. Uh, and so... My grandmother cooked, you know, on a wood stove and, uh, you know, everything, fresh eggs, fresh bacon. I mean, it was wonderful, the meals. So anyway, after we breakfast, we would jump on his tractor. He would drive and he had a platform on the back. Yeah. And so we rode out to, in general, we would ride out to a tobacco field and work, you know, until it got too hot. Well, this particular day, he didn't, we didn't go to the tractor. He went to the barn and got his horse. He had a, a workhorse. And he hitched to that horse a platform. Uh, he told me to get on that. And so we, and he stood on it. I, I, I sat on it. And we pulled that platform that had a plow on it out to a field, maybe, oh, a mile or a mile and a half away from the house. And so when I, and I never seen this before. I'd never seen a plow. I never didn't know anything about this. And so we got to this field. I was sitting there in the dirt playing around and he hooked, hitched up this plow and started plowing these perfectly uh, straight roads up and down. I was fascinated by it, but again, I not, nothing I've ever had, ever had ever seen. So he got about halfway through. Um, he had to go relieve himself in the woods. So he said, "Hey, I'll." Be. So he went into the woods. I'm thinking, okay, uh, you know, we've got this new relationship now. He's mentoring me, so I'm going to show him that, um, you know, excuse me, I'm going to show him that I'm mature and. Uh, and you know, I can, I can, I want to impress him. So as soon as he disappeared, I got up, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with a horse and a plow, but it's got, you know, the horse. Not really, but I think I know where this story's going. Yeah. It's got, uh, you know, this, the plow was sort of hooked by chains to the, to the reins and, and it's a big heavy thing. I was just a teenager. And so I barely get this plow up. I get behind the reins. And I know how to make the horse go forward. So I gave the horse the command and we take off. The problem is I had no idea how to plow or how to keep the plow straight. Right. So I'm starting now to cut directly diagonal across my grandfather's perfectly uh, uh, plowed rows. Now, keep in mind, this is, uh, I'm guessing, mid-60s. Uh, and, you know... And, and, and I don't advocate this. I don't support this at all now. But back then, you could whip your kids. And, and by the way, uh, nobody would know. And, right. and, and even if they did back then, if anything, they would encourage. Uh, and so I'm thinking, and by the way, he had never done that. But that, that's what I was worried about. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, because uh, the, the, the um, spanking tool of choice back then was called a switch, which is essentially a, a little branch off a tree. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm running behind this horse, literally scared to death. But the problem was I knew how to make the horse go forward. I did not know the command to make it stop. 
and so we're, I'm, I'm really scared. We're going across the roads. My grandfather comes out of the woods and he yells out, Larry, what are you doing? And I tur- try to turn around, but, I, you know, it's hard because I'm moving. Yeah. And so as I turned to look at him, I stumbled, almost fell. And as I was stumbling, I yelled out. I said, whoa. And then, of course, the horse but I, but I didn't know that was the <laughs> command to make the horse stop. <laughs> so, so now my grandfather storming across the field, field, and I'm looking around at all these trees out here, and I'm saying, oh, my God, he's never, he's never done this for me before, but here it comes. And so he got up to me and he said uh, something that was that stuck uh, that stayed with me my entire life. And it wasn't articulate. Uh, but what he said to me was, you know, he asked me, was I OK? And that surprised me. And I said, yeah, I'm OK. And he said, he said, well, it's OK to try and fail, but it's not OK not to try. Uh, and I thought about that and and it was. What he was telling me was that, you know, you can sit on this. It's easy to sit on the sidelines uh, and, and or sit on the bench, as an illustration I like to use during the football game. Yeah, and and yell about what you should do and what you, what yell at the players on the field about what they should be doing. Right. It's another thing for you to get up off the bench and get in the game. Uh, and so I think that's one of the major themes in the book. I think that goes throughout the book, and that is. Uh, it, you know, it, it's okay to try and fail, uh, but it's not okay not to try. How did you decide to write a book about your life? Um, so over time, um, I got to speak uh, to a lot of groups, both inside the uh, Air Force and out. Uh, folks uh, asked me to speak at a lot of different functions. And I would always tell these stories, you know, of, uh, of things I experienced uh, and things that I had to overcome. And folks would always come up to me after those speeches and say, you need to write a book um, and capture some of those stories. And, and then as I got more senior and I started to try to give back, in other words, I tried to mentor others the way I was mentored, you know, they were very interested when I would try to, when I would say, well, you know, you're going through this. Well, let me tell you how, you know, what I went through. And, and so I was encouraged to sort of capture uh, some of my life experiences. And by the way, at the end of the book, I do lift several life lessons, if you will. But um, so that I wrote the book to try to help people is the bottom line uh, after, after being encouraged by others to do so. Wow. Thank you. man. that that's a great story. And a great explanation of the theme. Now, I could easily end with that because that was fantastic. But would you? Do you feel like you you would like to read something from your book? Oh, sure, I don't mind. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll I just I'll give you a couple of short uh, uh, paragraphs, and this is the sort of opening of in the preface, but it it, it sort of puts in perspective this street called the horseshoe. Okay, great. Uh, And it starts off with, uh, I was born into existence as a dark horse, a contender with little or no chance of succeeding. Born an African-American in the early 1950s on a tough inner city, Southeast Washington, DC street called the horseshoe made me a dark horse. 
Dad was an enlisted man in the U.S. Army and worked two jobs to support our family of eight. Neighborhood kids teased me because Dad wore a prosthetic hook in place of his amputated left hand, an injury he received during the Korean War. Mom had not completed high school and had no driver's license. Both had migrated from Southern Virginia where Jim Crow laws and the separate but equal doctrine dominated their early lives and shaped their perspective. So let me fast forward now to being a four-star general. Okay. From that point, uh, and this opens that chapter. It says, uh, my emotions the morning of Friday, July 27th, 2012, ranged from disbelief to extreme humbleness and honor. It is the day I pinned on my fourth star and my anticipation level was palpable. When I enlisted in 1971, no African-American of any military service had achieved the rank of four stars. And then I go on, uh, and, and just to give you some context here, uh, when I was in the Pentagon, and I was there for quite a while before I retired, uh, the, the door I entered in the Pentagon, the Pentagon has a lot of entrances if you've ever been there, was the river entrance. And the river entrance is a, it's a majestic setting. It's, it's a long set of stairs that leads up to the Pentagon. And, and, and the, in the background is, is the Potomac River. But in this big parking lot there, and it is still the case today, I believe, there's always a line of these black vehicles that uh, folks dropped, that, that it, with drivers in them, and their job all day long is to drive DVs around, you know, DC over to the Hill, over to meetings, State Department, yeah. et cetera. That's what they did. That was their job. Most of these drivers were, most of them were African American. Most of them were, had been in the military at one point in time. Uh, I, I had seen them, I would speak to them, uh, you know, as I speak to everyone, because uh, that's the way I was raised. Uh, but I never really had a conversation with them. I just waved to them, how you doing? And, and they were always very nice to me. But so this is the context of this short paragraph. But it says, on this day, my second as a four-star general, about 10 of the men exited their vehicles and met me at the bottom of the stairs. One of the gentlemen whose face belied years of struggle and hardship spoke up and said he and his fellow drivers just wanted to express their pride in my promotion. They explained that they had watched me walk up those stairs for six years, initially as a one-star general, and their hearts, were, their hearts were filled with pride. But now that I was a four-star, they could no longer sit quietly inside their sedans. Rather, they wanted to express just how proud they were to see an African-American four-star general particularly because during their period of service, black officers, much less black general officers were indeed a rare sight. And then to, to sort of end, I'll, I'll sort of fast forward to some of the life lessons. And the first life lesson is even a dark horse can, can succeed, but I'll just start here and then with a couple of sentences and, and then finish it up. But I start out that, uh, that life lesson with, and keep in mind the history of my father. When dad was admitted to surgery at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in January, 2009, we couldn't imagine at the time that he would never return home. And then fast forward a paragraph, uh, because this was one of the days that I went to visit him. 
Uh, it's hard to say why on this day he confided in me in a, in a way he never had before. But sitting up, sitting up in his bed, he began to talk about how tough his experience had been as a young soldier in the U.S. Army during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. I guess it had never occurred to me that he entered the military before it was de desegregated. And after, even after legal integration, black soldiers con continued to be treated poorly. Listening to him talk about segregated and substandard facilities and being relegated to menial tasks broke my heart. He had to overcome so many obstacles during his life. My challenges paled in comparison. Um, so just kind of gives you a flavor for um, uh, a lot of the sort of going from this inner city kid with really no, uh, you know, very little hope, uh, very little self-esteem. And really, because no one around me did anything, no one, you know, there weren't folks in my neighborhood leaving, going off to do great things. It just didn't exist uh, to, you know, being a four-star general in the Air Force. It was an incredible journey. Uh, and again, my purpose is to not to talk about the journey to bring attention to myself, but hopefully that others will see what I endured and let them know that they can, if they're enduring anything similar, they can be successful as well. General Spencer, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your Saluki story. It was great to talk to you and hear more about your life and your upcoming book. Yours is an important story to read. Mine is on pre-order from the U.S. Naval Institute Press. We hope you all will join us next week for more Saluki stories. This has been John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale and your host for Saluki Stories. Our production would not have been made possible without the contributions of radio, television, di and digital media, assistant professor of practice, Jennifer Pape, student editor, producer, Casey Avis-Rouse, and our music production team, Austin Davis and Dakota Holden. Go dogs! <laughs>